0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Nicole Doolan on the web at NicoleDoolan.com. Mall Flanders by Daniel Defoe. Section 15 The first sensible reflect I made was that my husband was not by to see my disorder, and that I was very glad of it. The gentlemen had not been long in the house, but they came to the window of their room, as is usual. But my window was shut, you may be sure. However, I could not keep from peeping at them, and there I saw him again, heard him call out to one of the servants of the house, for something he wanted and received all the terrifying confirmations of its being the same person that were possible to be had my next concern was to know if possible what was his business there but that was impossible sometimes my imagination formed an idea of one frightful thing sometimes of another sometime i thought he had discovered me and was come to upbraid me with ingratitude and breach of honour, and every moment I fancied he was coming up the stairs to insult me, and innumerable fancies came into my head of what was never in his head, nor ever could be, unless the devil had revealed it to him. I remained in this fright nearly two hours, and scarce ever kept my eye from the window or door of the inn where they were. At last, hearing a great clatter in the passage of their inn, I ran to the window, and, to my great satisfaction, saw them all three go out again and travel on westward. Had they gone towards London, I should have been still in a fright, lest I should meet him on the road again, and that he should know me. But he went the contrary way. "'and so I was eased of that disorder. "'We resolved to be going the next day. "'But about six o'clock at night "'we were alarmed with a great uproar in the street, "'and people riding as if they had been out of their wits. "'And what was it? "'But a hue and cry after three highwaymen "'that had robbed two coaches "'and some other travellers near Dunstable Hill. "'And notice had, it seems, been given that they had been seen at prick hill at such a house meaning the house where those gentlemen had been the house was immediately beset and searched but there were witnesses enough that the gentlemen had been gone over 3 hours the crowd having gathered about we had the news presently and i was heartily concerned now another way i presently told the people of the house that I durst to say those were not the persons, for that I knew one of the gentlemen to be a very honest person, and of a good estate in Lancashire. The constable who came with the hue and cry was immediately informed of this, and came over to me to be satisfied from my own mouth, and I assured him that I saw the three gentlemen as I was at the window, that I saw them afterwards at the windows of the room they dined in, that I saw them afterwards take horse, and I could assure him I knew one of them to be such a man, that he was a gentleman of a very good estate, and an undoubted character in Lancashire, from whence I was just now upon my journey. The assurance with which I delivered this gave the mob gentry a check, and gave the constable such satisfaction that he immediately sounded a retreat, Told his people these were not the men, but that he had an account they were very honest gentlemen, and so they went all back again. What the truth of the matter was, I knew not, but certain it was that the coaches were robbed at Dunstable Hill, and five hundred and sixty pounds in money taken. Besides, some of the lace merchants that always travel that way had been visited too. As to the three gentlemen, that remains to be explained hereafter. Well, this alarm stopped us another day, though my spouse was for travelling, and told me that it was always safest travelling after a robbery, for that the thieves were sure to be gone far enough off when they had alarmed the country. But I was afraid and uneasy and indeed principally lest my old acquaintance should be upon the road still, and should chance to see me. I never lived four pleasanter days together in my life. I was a mere bride all this while, and my new spouse strove to make me entirely easy in everything. Oh, could this state of life have continued! How had all my past troubles been forgot? And my future sorrows avoided. But I had a past life of a most wretched kind to account for, some of it in this world as well as in another. We came away the fifth day, and my landlord, because he saw me uneasy, mounted himself, his son, and three honest country fellows with good firearms, and without telling us of it, followed the coach and would see us safe into Dunstable. We could do no less than treat them very handsomely at Dunstable, which cost my spouse about ten or twelve shillings, and something he gave the men for their time, too. But my landlord would take nothing for himself. This was the most happy contrivance for me that could have fallen out. For had I come to London unmarried, I must either have come to him for the first night's entertainment, or have discovered to him that I had not one acquaintance in the whole city of London that could receive a poor bride for the first night's lodging with her spouse. But now, being an old married woman, I made no scruple of going directly home with him, and there I took possession at once of a house well furnished, and a husband in very good circumstances, so that I had a prospect of a very happy life, if I knew how to manage it. And I had leisure to consider of the real value of the life I was likely to live, how different it was to be from the loose, ungoverned part I had acted before, and how much happier a life of virtue and sobriety is than that which we call a life of pleasure. Oh, had this particular scene of life lasted, or had i learned from that time i enjoyed it to have tasted the true sweetness of it and had i not fallen into that poverty which is the sure bane of virtue how happy had i been not only here but perhaps for ever for while i lived thus i was really a penitent for all my life past i looked back on it with abhorrence and might truly be said to hate myself for it. I often reflected how my lover at the bath, struck at the hand of God, repented and abandoned me, and refused to see me any more, though he loved me to an extreme. But I, prompted by that worst of devils, poverty, returned to the vile practice, and made the advantage of what they call a handsome face to be the relief to my necessities, and beauty be a pimp to vice. Now I seemed landed in a safe harbour, after the stormy voyage of life past was at an end, and I began to be thankful for my deliverance. I sat many an hour by myself, and wept over the remembrance of past follies, and the dreadful extravagances of a wicked life and sometimes I flattered myself, that I had sincerely repented. But there are temptations which it is not in the power of human nature to resist, and few know what would be their case, if driven to the same exigencies. As covetous is the root of all evil, so poverty is, I believe, the worst of all snares. But I waive that discourse till I come to an experiment. I lived with this husband with the utmost tranquillity. He was a quiet, sensible, sober man, virtuous, modest, sincere, and in his business diligent and just. His business was in a narrow compass, and his income sufficient to a plentiful way of living in the ordinary way. I do not say to keep an equipage, and make a figure, as the world calls it. Nor did I expect it, or desire it, for as I abhorred the levity and extravagance of my former life, so I chose now to live retired, frugal, and within ourselves. I kept no company, made no visits, minded my family, and obliged my husband and this kind of life became a pleasure to me. We lived in an uninterrupted course of ease and content for five years, when a sudden blow, from an almost invisible hand, blasted all my happiness, and turned me out into the world, in a condition the reverse of all that had been before it. My husband— Having trusted one of his fellow clerks, with a sum of money, too much for our fortunes to bear the loss of, the clerk failed, and the loss fell very heavy on my husband. Yet it was not so great neither, but that, if he had had spirit and courage to have looked his misfortunes in the face, his credit was so good that, as I told him, he would easily recover it. For to sink under trouble— Is to double the weight, and he that will die in it shall die in it. It was in vain to speak comfortably to him, the wound had sunk too deep. It was a stab that touched the vitals. He grew melancholy and disconsolate, and from that, thence lethargic, and died. I foresaw the blow. AND WAS EXTREMELY OPPRESSED IN MY MIND, FOR I SAW EVIDENTLY THAT IF HE DIED, I WAS UNDONE. I HAD HAD TWO CHILDREN BY HIM, AND NO MORE, FOR, TO TELL THE TRUTH, IT BEGAN TO BE TIME FOR ME TO LEAVE BEARING CHILDREN. FOR I WAS NOW EIGHT AND FORTY, AND I SUPPOSE IF HE HAD LIVED, I SHOULD HAVE HAD NO MORE. I was now left in a dismal and disconsolate case indeed, and in several things worse than ever. First, it was past the flourishing time with me, when I might expect to be courted for a mistress. That agreeable part had declined some time, and the ruins only appeared of what had been. And that which was worse than all this, THAT I WAS THE MOST DEJECTED, DISCONSOLATE CREATURE ALIVE. I, THAT HAD ENCOURAGED MY HUSBAND, AND ENDEAVORED TO SUPPORT HIS SPIRITS UNDER HIS TROUBLE, COULD NOT SUPPORT MY OWN. I WANTED THAT SPIRIT IN TROUBLE, WHICH I TOLD HIM WAS SO NECESSARY TO HIM FOR BEARING THE BURTHEN. BUT MY CASE WAS INDEED DEPLORABLE for I was left perfectly friendless and helpless, and the loss my husband had sustained had reduced his circumstances so low, that though indeed I was not in debt, yet I could easily foresee that what was left would not support me long, that while it wasted daily for subsistence, I had not way to increase it one shilling, so that it would be soon all spent And then I saw nothing before me but the utmost distress, and this represented itself so lively to my thoughts, that it seemed as if I was come before it was really very near. Also my very apprehensions doubled the misery, for I fancied every sixpence that I paid for a loaf of bread was the last that I had in the world, and that to-morrow I was to fast and be starved to death. In this distress I had no assistant, no friend to comfort or advise me. I sat and cried and tormented myself night and day, wringing my hands, and sometimes raving like a distracted woman. And, indeed, I have often wondered it had not affected my reason, for I had the vapours to such a degree that my understanding was sometimes quite lost in fancies and imaginations. I lived two years in this dismal condition, wasting that little I had, weeping continually over my dismal circumstances, and, as it were, only bleeding to death, without the least hope or prospect of help from God or man. And now I had cried too long, and so often— The tears were, as I might say, exhausted, and I began to be desperate, for I grew poor apace. For a little relief, I had put off my house and took lodgings, and I was reducing my living, so I sold off most of my goods, which put a little money in my pocket, and I lived near a year upon that, spending very sparingly and eking things out to the utmost. But still, when I looked before me, my very heart would sink within me at the inevitable approach of misery and want. Oh, let none read this part without seriously reflecting on the circumstances of a desolate state, and how they would grapple with mere want of friends and want of bread, It will certainly make them think not of sparing what they have, only but of looking up to heaven for support. And of the wise man's prayer. Give me not poverty, lest I steal. Let them remember that a time of distress is a time of dreadful temptation. And all the strength to resist is taken away. Poverty presses. THE SOUL IS MADE DESPERATE BY DISTRESS, AND WHAT CAN BE DONE? IT WAS ONE EVENING, WHEN BEING BROUGHT, AS I MAY SAY, TO THE LAST GASP. I THINK I MAY TRULY SAY I WAS DISTRACTED AND RAVING, WHEN PROMPTED BY I KNOW NOT WHAT SPIRIT, AND, AS IT WERE, DOING I DID NOT KNOW WHAT OR WHY. I dressed me, for I had still pretty good clothes, and went out. I am very sure I had no manner of design in my head when I went out. I neither knew nor considered where to go, or on what business. But as the devil carried me out, and laid his bait for me, so he brought me, to be sure, to the place, for I knew not whither I was going or what I did wandering thus about. I knew not whither. I passed by an apothecary shop in Leadenhall Street, when I saw lie on a stool, just before the counter, a little bundle wrapped in a white cloth. Beyond it stood a maid servant with her back to it. Looking towards the top of the shop, where the apothecary's apprentice, as I suppose, was standing upon the counter, with his back also to the door, and a candle in his hand, looking and reaching up to the upper shelf for something he wanted, so that both were engaged mighty earnestly, and nobody else in the shop. This was the bait, and the devil, who I said laid the snare, as readily prompted me as if he had spoke. For I remember and shall never forget it. "'Twas like a voice spoken to me over my shoulder, "'Take the bundle, be quick, do it this moment.' "'It was no sooner said, but I stepped into the shop, "'and with my back to the wench, "'as if I had stood up for a cart that was going by. "'I put my hand behind me, and took the bundle, "'and went off with it. "'The maid or the fellow not perceiving me, or anyone else. It is impossible to express the horror of my soul all the while I did it. When I went away, I had no heart to run, or scarce to mend my pace. I crossed the street, indeed, and went down the first turning I came to, and I think it was a street that went through into Fenchurch Street. From thence I crossed and turned through so many ways and turnings that I could never tell which way it was, not where I went, for I felt not the ground I stepped on, and the farther I was out of danger, the faster I went till, tired and out of breath, I was forced to sit down on a little bench at a door, and then I began to recover, and found I was got into Thames Street, near Billingsgate. I rested me a little and went on. My blood was all in a fire. My heart beat as if I was in a sudden fright. In short, I was under such a surprise that I still knew not whither I was going, or what to do. After I had tired myself thus, with walking a long way about, and so eagerly, I began to consider and make home to my lodging, Where I came about nine o'clock at night, when the bundle was made up for, or on what occasion laid where I found it, I knew not. But when I came to open it, I found there was a suit of child bed linen in it, very good and almost new, the lace very fine. There was a silver porringer of a pint, a small silver mug, and six spoons, with some other linen a good smock, and three silk handkerchiefs, and in the mug, wrapped up in a paper, eighteen shillings, six pence in money. All the while I was opening these things, I was under such dreadful impressions of fear, and I such terror of mind, though I was perfectly safe, that I cannot express the manner of it. I sat me down, and cried most vehemently, Lord, said I, what am I now, a thief? Why, I shall be taken next time, and be carried to Newgate, and be tried for my life. And with that I cried again a long time, and I am sure, as poor as I was, if I had durst for fear, I would certainly have carried the things back again. But that went off after a while. Well, I went to bed for that night, but slept little. The horror of the fact was upon my mind, and I knew not what I said or did all night and all the next day. Then I was impatient to hear some news of the loss, and would fain know how it was, whether they were a poor body's goods or a rich. Perhaps, said I, it may be some poor widow like me THAT HAD PACKED UP THESE GOODS TO GO AND SELL THEM FOR A LITTLE BREAD FOR HERSELF AND A POOR CHILD, AND ARE NOW STARVING AND BREAKING THEIR HEARTS FOR WANT OF THAT LITTLE THEY WOULD HAVE FETCHED. AND THIS THOUGHT TORMENTED ME WORSE THAN ALL THE REST, FOR THREE OR FOUR DAYS' TIME. BUT MY OWN DISTRESSES SILENCED ALL THESE REFLECTIONS, AND THE PROSPECT OF MY OWN STARVING which grew every day more frightful to me, hardened my heart by degrees. It was then particularly heavy upon my mind that I had been reformed, and had, as I hoped, repented of all my past wickedness, that I had lived a sober, grave, retired life for several years, But now I should be driven by the dreadful necessity of my circumstances to the gates of destruction, soul and body. And two or three times I fell upon my knees, praying to God, as well as I could, for deliverance. But I cannot but say, my prayers had no hope in them. I knew not what to do. It was all a fear without and dark within and I reflected on my past life as not sincerely repented of, that heaven was now beginning to punish me on this side the grave, and would make me as miserable as I had been wicked. Had I gone on here, I had perhaps been a true penitent. But I had an evil counsellor within, and he was continually prompting me to relieve myself by the worst means. So one evening he tempted me again, by the same wicked impulse that had said, Take that bundle, to go out again, and seek for what might happen. I went out now by daylight, and wandered about I knew not whither, And in search of I knew not what, when the devil put a snare in my way, Of a dreadful nature indeed and such a one as I have never had before or since. Going through Aldersgate Street, there was a pretty little child who had been at dancing school and was going home all alone, and my prompter, like a true devil, set me upon this innocent creature. I talked to it, and it prattled to me again, and I took it by the hand, and led it along till I came to a paved alley that goes into Bartholomew Close, And I led it in there. The child said that was not its way home. I said, Yes, my dear, it is. I'll show you the way home. The child had a little necklace on of gold beads, and I had my eye upon that, and in the dark of the alley I stooped pretending to mend the child's clog that was loose, and took off her necklace, and the child never felt it, and so led the child on again. Here, I say, the devil put me upon killing the child in the dark alley, that it might not cry. But the very thought frighted me so that I was ready to drop down. But I turned the child about and bade it go back again, for that was not its way home. Child said, so she would, and I went through into Bartholomew Close, and then turned round to another passage that goes into St. John Street. Then, crossing into Smithfield, went down Chick Lane, and into Field Lane, to Hoborn Bridge, when, mixing with the crowd of people usually passing there, it was not possible to have been found out and thus I enterprised my second sally into the world. The thoughts of this booty put out all the thoughts of the first, and the reflections I had made wore quickly off. Poverty, as I have said, hardened my heart, and my own necessities made me regardless of anything. The last affair left no great concern upon me, for as I did the poor child no harm, I only said to myself, I had given the parents a just reproof for their negligence in leaving the poor little lamb to come home by itself, and it would teach them to take more care of it another time. The string of beads was worth about twelve or fourteen pounds. I suppose it might have been formerly the mother's, for it was too big for the child's wear, but that perhaps the vanity of the mother, to have a child look fine at the dancing school, had made her let the child wear it. "'And no doubt the child had a maid sent to take care of it. "'But she, careless Jade, "'was taken up, perhaps, with some fellow "'that had met her by the way. "'And so the poor baby wandered till it fell into my hands. "'However, I did the child no harm. "'I did not so much as fright it. "'For I had a great many tender thoughts about me yet, "'and did nothing but what—' As I may say, mere necessity drove me to. I had a great many adventures after this, but I was young in the business, and did not know how to manage otherwise than as the devil put things into my head, and indeed he was seldom backward to me. One adventure I had which was very lucky to me. I was going through Lombard Street in the dusk of the evening just by the end of Three-King Court, when on a sudden comes a fellow running by me as swift as lightning, and throws a bundle that was in his hand, just behind me, as I stood up against the corner of the house, at the turning into the alley, just as he threw it in he said, God bless you, mistress, let it lie there a little, and away he runs, swift as the wind after him comes two more and immediately a young fellow without his hat crying stop thief and after him two or three more they pursued the two last fellows so close that they were forced to drop what they had got and one of them was taken into the bargain and other got off free i stood stock still all this while till they came back dragging the poor fellow they had taken and lugging the things they had found extremely well satisfied that they had recovered the booty and taken the thief. And thus they passed by me, for I looked only like one who stood up while the crowd was gone. Once or twice I asked what was the matter, but the people neglected answering me, and I was not very importunate. But after the crowd was wholly past, I took my opportunity to turn about and take up what was behind me and walk away. THIS, INDEED, I DID WITH LESS DISTURBANCE THAN I HAD DONE FORMERLY, FOR THESE THINGS I DID NOT STEAL, BUT THEY WERE STOLEN TO MY HAND. I GOT SAFE TO MY LODGINGS WITH THIS CARGO, WHICH WAS A PIECE OF FINE BLACK LUSTRING SILK, AND A PIECE OF VELVET. THE LATTER WAS BUT PART OF A PIECE OF ABOUT ELEVEN YARDS, THE FORMER WAS A WHOLE PIECE OF NEAR FIFTY YARDS. It seems it was a mercer's shop that they had rifled. I say rifled, because the goods were so considerable that they had lost. For the goods that they recovered were pretty many, and I believe came to about six or seven several pieces of silk. How they came to get so many I could not tell, but as I had only robbed the thief, I made no scruple at taking these goods, and being very glad of them too. I had pretty good luck thus far, and I made several adventures more, though with but small purchase, yet with good success. But I went in daily dread that some mischief would befall me, and that I should certainly come to be hanged at last. The impression this made on me was too strong to be slighted, and it kept me from making attempts that, for aught I knew, might have been very safely performed but one thing I cannot omit, which was a bait to me many a day. I walked frequently out into the villages round the town, to see if nothing would fall in my way there, and going by a house near Stepney, I saw on the window-board two rings, one a small diamond ring, and the other a gold ring, to be sure laid there by some thoughtless lady that had more money than forecast, perhaps only till she washed her hands. I walked several times by the window to observe if I could see whether there was anybody in the room or no. And I could see nobody. But still I was not sure. It came presently into my thoughts to rap at the glass, as if I wanted to speak with somebody, and if anybody was there they would be sure to come to the window and then I would tell them to remove those rings, for that I had seen two suspicious fellows take notice of them. This was a ready thought. I rapped once or twice, and nobody came, when, seeing the coast clear, I thrust hard against the square of the glass, and broke it with very little noise, and took out the two rings, and walked away with them very safe. The diamond ring was worth about three pounds, and the other about nine shillings. I was now at a loss for a market for my goods, and especially for my two pieces of silk. I was very loath to dispose of them for a trifle, as the poor unhappy thieves in general do, who, after they have entered their lives for perhaps a thing of value, are feigned to sell it for a song when they have done. But I was resolved I would not do thus whatever shift I made, unless I was driven to the last extremity. However, I did not well know what course to take. At last I resolved to go to my old governess, and acquaint myself with her again. I had punctually supplied the five pounds a year to her, for my little boy, as long as I was able. But at last was obliged to put a stop to it. However, I had written a letter to her, wherein I had told her that my circumstances were reduced very low, that I had lost my husband, and that I was not able to do it any longer, and so begged that the poor child might not suffer too much for its mother's misfortunes. I now made her a visit, and I found that she drove something of the old trade still, but that she was not in such flourishing circumstances as before for she had been sued by a certain gentleman, who had had his daughter stolen from him, and who, it seems, she had helped to convey away, and it was very narrowly that she escaped the gallows. The expense also had ravaged her, and she was become very poor. Her house was but meanly furnished, and she was not in such repute for her practice as before. However, She stood upon her legs, as they say, and as she was a stirring, bustling woman, and had some stock left, she was turned pawnbroker and lived pretty well. She received me very civilly, and with her usual obliging manner, told me she would not have the less respect for me for my being reduced. That she had taken care my boy was very well looked after though I could not pay for him, and that the woman that had him was easy, so that I needed not trouble myself about him, till I might be better able to do it effectually. I told her that I had not much money left, but that I had some things that were money's worth, if she could tell me how I might turn them into money. She asked me what it was I had. I pulled out the string of gold beads, and told her it was one of my husband's presents to me, Then I showed her the two parcels of silk, which I told her I had from Ireland, and brought up to town with me, and the little diamond ring. As to the small parcel of plate and spoons, I had found means to dispose of them myself before, and as for the child-bed linen I had, she offered me to take it herself, believing it to have been my own. She told me that she was turned pawnbroker, and that she would sell those things for me as pawn to her, and so she sent presently for proper agents that bought them, being in her hands, without any scruple, and gave good prices too. I now began to think this necessary woman might help me a little in my low condition to some business, for I would gladly have turned my hand to any honest employment if I could have got it, But here she was deficient. Honest business did not come within her reach. If I had been younger, perhaps she might have helped me to a spark. But my thoughts were off that kind of livelihood, as being quite out of the way after fifty, which was my case, and so I told her. She invited me at last to come, and be at her house till I could find something to do, and it should cost me very little and this I gladly accepted of. And now, living a little easier, I entered into some measures to have my little son by my last husband taken off. And this she made easy, too, reserving a payment of only five pounds a year, if I could pay it. This was such a help to me, that for a good while I left off the wicked trade that I had so newly taken up, and gladly I would have got my bread by the help of my needle if I could have got work. But that was very hard to do for one that had no manner of acquaintance in the world. However, at last I got some quilting work for ladies' beds, petticoats and the like, and this I liked very well, and worked very hard, and with this I began to live. But the diligent devil who resolved I should continue in his service, continually prompted me to go out and take a walk, that is to say, to see if anything would offer in the old way. One evening I blindly obeyed his summons, and fetched a long circuit through the streets, but met with no purchase, and came home very weary and empty. But not content with that, I went out the next evening too, when going by an alehouse. I saw the door of a little room open, next the very street, and on the table a silver tankard, things much in use in public houses at that time. It seemed some company had been drinking there, and the careless boys had forgot to take it away. I went into the box, frankly, and setting the silver tankard on the corner of the bench. I sat down before it, and knocked with my foot. A boy came presently and I bade him fetch me a pint of warm ale, for it was cold weather. The boy ran, and I heard him go down the cellar to draw the ale. While the boy was gone, another boy came into the room and cried, ye call?" I spoke with a melancholy air and said, No, child, the boy is gone for a pint of ale for me. While I sat here, I heard the woman in the bar say, "'Are they all gone in the five, which was the box I sat in. And the boy said, "'Yes. Who fetched the tankard away?' says the woman. "'I did,' says another boy. "'That's it,' pointing, it seems, to another tankard which he had fetched from another box by mistake. For else it must be that the rogue forgot that he had not brought it in, which certainly he had not.' I heard all this much to my satisfaction, for I found plainly that the tankard was not missed. And yet they concluded it was fetched away. So I drank my ale, called to pay, and as I went away I said, "'Take care of your plate, child,' meaning a silver-pint mug, which he brought me drink in. The boy said, "'Yes, madam, very welcome,' and away I came." I came home to my governess, and now I thought it was a time to try her, that if I might be put to the necessity of being exposed, she might offer me some assistance. When I had been at home some time, and had an opportunity of talking to her, I told her I had a secret of the greatest consequence in the world to commit to her, if she had respect enough for me to keep it a secret. She told me she had kept one of my secrets faithfully. Why should I doubt her keeping another? I told her the strangest thing in the world had befallen me, and that it had made a thief of me, even without any design, and so told her the whole story of the tankard. "'And have you brought it away with you, my dear?' says she. "'To be sure I have,' says I, and showed it to her. "'But what shall I do now?' says I must not carry it again.' "'Carry it again?' says she. "'Aye, if you are minded to be sent to Newgate for stealing it.' "'Why,' says I, "'they can't be so base to stop me, when I carry it to them again.' "'You don't know those sort of people, child,' says she. "'They'll not only carry you to Newgate, but hang you too, without any regard to the honesty of returning it.' "'or bring in an account of all the other tankards they have lost "'for you to pay for.' "'What must I do, then?' says I. "'Nay,' says she, "'as you have played the cunning part and stole it. "'You must e'en keep it. "'There's no going back now.' "'Besides, child,' says she, "'don't you want it more than they do?' "'I wish you could light of such a bargain once a week.' This gave me a new notion of my governess, and that since she was turned pawnbroker, she had a sort of people about her that were none of the honest ones that I had met with there before. I had not been long there, but I discovered it more plainly than before, for every now and then I saw hilts of swords, spoons, forks, tankards, and all such kind of ware brought in, not to be pawned. But to be sold downright. And she bought everything that came without asking any questions, but had very good bargains, as I found by her discourse. I found also that in following this trade, she always melted down the plates she bought, that it might not be challenged. And she came to me and told me one morning that she was going to melt, and if I would, she would put my tankard in. THAT IT MIGHT NOT BE SEEN BY ANYBODY. I TOLD HER WITH ALL MY HEART. SO SHE WEIGHED IT, AND ALLOWED ME THE FULL VALUE IN SILVER AGAIN. BUT I FOUND SHE DID NOT DO THE SAME TO THE REST OF HER CUSTOMERS. SOME TIME AFTER THIS, AS I WAS AT WORK AND VERY MELANCHOLY, SHE BEGINS TO ASK ME WHAT THE MATTER WAS, AS SHE WAS USED TO DO. I TOLD HER MY HEART WAS HEAVY, I had little work, and nothing to live on, and knew not what course to take. She laughed, and told me I must go out again and try my fortune. It might be that I might meet with another piece of plate. "'Oh, mother,' says I, "'that is a trade I have no skill in, and if I should be taken I am undone at once.' Says she— "'I could help you to a schoolmistress "'that shall make you as dexterous as herself.' "'I trembled at that proposal, "'for hitherto I had had no confederates, "'nor any acquaintance among that tribe, "'but she conquered all my modesty "'and all my fears. "'And in a little time, "'by the help of this confederate, "'I grew as impudent a thief, "'and as dexterous as ever cut Cutpurse was.' though, if fame does not belie her, not half so handsome. The comrade she helped me to dealt in three sorts of craft, viz, shoplifting, stealing of shop-books, and pocket-books, and taking off gold watches from the lady's sides, and this last she did so dexterously that no woman ever arrived to the performance of that art so as to do it like her. I liked the first and the last of these things very well, and I attended her some time in the practice, just as a deputy attends a midwife, without any pay. At length she put me to practice. She had shown me her art, and I had several times unhooked a watch from her own side with great dexterity. At last she showed me a prize, and this was a young lady big with child, who had a charming watch. The thing was to be done as she came out of church. She goes on one side of the lady and pretends, just as she came to the steps, to fall, and fell against the lady with so much violence as put her into a great fright, and both cried out terribly. In the very moment that she jostled the lady, I had hold of the watch, and holding it the right way, The start she gave drew the hook out, and she never felt it. I made off immediately, and left my schoolmistress to come out of her pretended fright gradually, and the lady too, and presently the watch was missed. "'Aye,' says my comrade, "'then it was those rogues that thrust me down, I warrant ye. I wonder the gentlewoman did not miss her watch before.' Then we might have taken them. She humoured the thing so well that nobody suspected her, and I was got home a full hour before her. This was my first adventure in company. The watch was indeed a very fine one, and had a great many trinkets about it, and my governess allowed us twenty pounds for it, of which I had half, and thus I was entered a complete thief. "'hardened to the pitch above all the reflections of conscience or modesty. "'And to a degree which I must acknowledge, I never thought possible in me. "'Thus the devil, who began, by the help of an irresistible poverty, "'to push me into this wickedness, brought me on to a height beyond the common rate. "'Even when my necessities were not so great, or the prospect of my misery so terrifying. For I had now got into a little vein of work, and as I was not at a loss to handle my needle, it was very probable, as acquaintance came in, I might have got my bread honestly enough. I must say that if such a prospect of work had presented itself at first, when I began to feel the approach of my miserable circumstances, I say— Had such a prospect of getting my bread by working presented itself then, I had never fallen into this wicked trade, or into such a wicked gang as I was now embarked with, but practice had hardened me. And I grew audacious to the last degree, and the more so because I had carried it on so long, and had never been taken, for, in a word, my new partner in wickedness and I, Went on together so long, without being ever detected, that we not only grew bold, but we grew rich, and we had at one time one and twenty gold watches in our hands. I remember that one day being a little more serious than ordinary, and finding I had so good a stock beforehand as I had, for I had near two hundred pounds in money for my share it came strongly into my mind, no doubt from some kind spirit, if such there be, that at first poverty excited me, and my distresses drove me to these dreadful shifts. So seeing those distresses were now relieved, and I could also get something towards a maintenance by working, and had so good a bank to support me. Why should I now not leave off, as they say, while I was well? that I could not expect to go always free, and if I was once surprised and miscarried, I was undone. This was doubtless the happy minute, when, if I had hearkened to the blessed hint, from whatsoever had it came, I had still a cast for an easy life. But my fate was otherwise determined. The busy devil that so industriously drew me in had too fast hold of me to let me go back. But as poverty brought me into the mire, so Avarice kept me in, till there was no going back. As to the arguments which my reason dictated for persuading me to lay down, Avarice stepped in and said, Go on, go on, you have had very good luck. Go on till you have gotten four or five hundred pounds, and then you shall leave off and then you may live easy without working at all. Thus I, that was once in the devil's clutches, was held fast there as with a charm, and had no power to go without the circle, till I was engulfed in labyrinths of trouble too great to get out at all. However, these thoughts left some impression upon me, and made me act with some more caution than before, and more than my directors used for themselves. My comrade, as I called her, but rather she should have been called my teacher, with another of her scholars, was the first in the misfortune, for, happening to be upon the hunt for purchase, they made an attempt upon a linen-draper in Cheapside, but were snapped by a hawks eyed journeyman, and seized with two pieces of cambric, which were taken also upon them. This was enough to lodge them both in Newgate where they had the misfortune to have some of their former sins brought to remembrance, two other indictments being brought against them, and the facts being proved upon them. They were both condemned to die. They both pleaded their bellies, and were both voted quick with child, though my tutoress was no more with child than I was. I went frequently to see them, and condole with them, "'expecting that it would be my turn next. "'But the place gave me so much horror, "'reflecting that it was the place of my unhappy birth "'and of my mother's misfortunes, "'that I could not bear it. "'So I was forced to leave off going to see them. "'And, oh, could I have but taken warning by their disasters! "'I had been happy still, for I was yet free.' And had nothing brought against me. But it could not be. My measure was not yet filled up. End of section fifteen. Recorded by Nicole Doolin on the web at com